Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, will driverless cars ever become a reality? For years now, we've been hearing how driverless cars are just around the corner. You hop in, maybe you take a nap, and the car, it zips along in traffic with no effort from you. Self-driving taxi service called Waymo is coming to Los Angeles. Down the road, level five autonomy would mean fully driverless cars. Waiting on this car here. Now it's clear. And it's going, oh my gosh. And yet, despite billions spent on prototypes and testing, autonomous vehicles on the open road still appear years away. Why has this been so elusive? Yeah, if you could just kind of like get pedestrians to behave more reliably, and if you could remove all the human-driven cars from the road, then you could have very safe, very effective driverless cars. The problem is, good luck. That's my Bloomberg colleague, Max Chafkin. He's been reporting on the push for driverless cars, and he's here to talk about the persistent roadblocks still in the way. First, though, an insider's view of the problem. Anthony Lewandowski pioneered the first driverless cars for Google and then Uber, and he was an early evangelist for the technology. But recently, he's become skeptical that autonomous vehicles can actually work in the real world, at least in the near future. He's now taking his efforts in a different direction with a new company called Pronto. Anthony, you were one of the pioneers, I guess you could say really the pioneer of autonomous cars and the idea that cars were going to be able to drive on the road by themselves alongside cars being driven by people. When you first started really looking into this and putting yourself into it, what did you imagine? What was the world that you imagined and how would it look? To me, the world that I imagine is one where the fatalities that folks are are suffering every year, tens of thousands in the U.S., you know, over a million worldwide, and the inconvenience, you know, is, is gone. So think of like the Jetsons, where everything that you want comes to you. And whenever you need to go somewhere, there's this magic carpet that's just around the corner. You hop in and you go there. There wasn't a single moment where that just became true. But like, the potential for this is huge, right? It's it's probably bigger than the, the internet. It's just a very complicated way to get there. And you worked a long time. You were at Google in their autonomous car program, which led the way for a long time, spent a lot of money, a lot of time working on it. And then ultimately, if we flash forward till now, you've kind of lost faith that autonomous cars in the way that you described are going to happen. What changed? What made you realize this wasn't going to work? If you were to take a ride and a lot of demonstrations that are happening by these companies, 
you would walk away from that and be like, oh my goodness, this is like happening next week. I didn't see this coming. I need to completely change my business. I need to completely change what's going on. And so there's a a little bit of a euphoria that people have when they experience these really magical demonstrations. And the reality of that is that you could be very good on this one route in this one area, but if you were to just move to a new city, it just couldn't drive 100 feet down the, the road outside of your house. And so what we're doing now is not learning to drive. We're really perfecting this demonstration that we've been doing for the last 10 years and making that more and more usable as opposed to really knowing how to drive and it just works everywhere. Well, let's explain a little bit why that is. Can you tell us, kind of just in layman's terms, how a driverless car, an autonomous vehicle actually works? There's sensors on there that kind of tell you where you are to start off in the world. Uh, You think of this as like a GPS. Then there's the sensors that tell you what's going on around you. You can think of cameras and lasers and radars. And those do kind of two things. One is they help you like refine where you are in the map because the GPS might tell you you're at like uh, Main Street and 2nd Avenue. And then the camera and the lasers around you are telling you like, oh, I'm in lane two and I'm two cars back from the light and the lights, you know, red and so forth. So you have a little bit more information there. Then you have the kind of the computers on board, which have like many, many CPUs, tons of GPUs, like a lot of computing processing on wheels. There's a software component, which is really where all the magic in my mind happens and still needs to happen. And then there's a drive-by-wire piece. So after the sensors have been processed and the destination has been you know, entered and the vehicle's trying to navigate there, it needs to physically control the steering wheel, the brake, the gas, the windshield wipers, the lights, and all this other stuff. And that's kind of the, the interface there. You say the software is where the magic happens. Has that been the really difficult thing to get right? Absolutely. So a lot of people like to romanticize and be like, if only my camera could see further or my laser could see further, then I can just solve the problem. And in reality, that's just not the case, right? Even almost since like day one, like 10 years plus ago, all of the places where, you know, the software made a mistake, it was never because it couldn't see the thing. Uh, It just couldn't interpret the sensor data that was coming to it correctly. And so the software is where the actual value in the self-driving cars comes from, and, and that's what's missing. And is that because a lot of AI is based on lots and lots of scenarios that a computer has to fall back on to say, this looks like something else, and in that case, I should behave in this way. And yet, the number of scenarios are kind of endless, and there just aren't enough of those examples for the computer to be able to reference? It's obviously very complicated, but the way to think about it is like, there are more like possibilities for your drive from home to work than there are like atoms in the universe. Right. There could be like this leaf could have fallen and this bird could have been here and the, you know, the road could have been here and the sun could. There's just so many permutations. And so the question is about generalization and how can you build AI software that can really process these and categorize them correctly and then handle them correctly on that. And we're pretty good for better than a person at finding lanes and where you can drive, detecting vehicles, detecting people, because we've had so many instances of like, these are cars driving down the street and some person somewhere drew a little box around it said like, this is a car. And some said, this is a person. And we have like tens and tens of millions of these there. So we actually have enough generalization there. But all the interactions are where the difficulty is. And those are harder to do because unlike when you just drive by and you see everything around you, you're labeling everything, you're only doing very few interactions per drive. And, you know, we wouldn't want to have the cars just trying and crashing all the time and be like, oh, well, that didn't work. Oh, let's try it again. Let's try it again. Right? So 
it's a lot more tricky to do that. And some people have simulators, of course, to do it, but that's where the, the limitations are falling short from being just press the button and let the computer figure it out. Can I ask you about one real-world scenario that I found fascinating is that some autonomous vehicles have difficulty just making a left turn? Yes. So there's a industry lingo they call UPL, uh, unprotected left turn. And the issue there is, you know, the software that's running isn't comfortable estimating knowing whether or not the oncoming traffic will see them and stop for them or will they wait for it to be super clear so it's not possible for them to get in an accident and then they'll make the, the left turn. And so sometimes as a human, you're like, all right, we're in rush hour jam here. I need to like assert myself. If that person were to just keep driving straight, even though they have the right of way, because we're in a traffic condition, I'm just jamming in, they're going to slow down a little bit and let me go. But if you're behind one of these autonomous vehicles, it's not able to do that kind of interaction. And so it's just going to wait for it to be open enough for you to go. And if you're the person behind that, you're like honking the horn. You're like, come on, let's go. I can do this. you know. And so it just gets frustrating on that level. And, and while it's frustrating for that person, it's just like have patience for the, the autonomous vehicle. They're trying really hard. They just don't know. You know, They want it to be super safe, right? So they're kind of more on the train or airplane model where they really just want to drive where they know it's going to be safe. And the way we drive is we're constantly flirting with like comfortable areas of like, is this person going to go or not? And if you start going, you see that person not starting in, you're going to maybe hit the brakes and stop and let them go and then be like, wow, that was close. Or you're going to jam on the gas and squeeze it out. That's just not something that you're going to want the machine to do, right? And so it's hard to get that level of fidelity. I think you've said something like autonomous cars are always five years away. They've been five years away since, I think, 2010 at least, you know, and then probably even earlier than that. This is not like, oh, it's impossible. This is not an impossible task. It's just a very, very difficult task. And my point is that we just don't know how close we are, right? And so we're, we're showing amazing feats of achievements and demonstrations but we don't know. We can't say like, oh, I'm 97.2% done. Anthony, other companies are still investing in autonomous cars that can drive on the open road. And your skepticism about that is a bit controversial because you're a prominent person in the industry and you still have skin in the game. But also because you started at Google, you went to Uber, and then Google said you took proprietary information with you. And you pleaded guilty to one count of stealing trade secrets, and you were spared an 18-month prison sentence when President Trump pardoned you. When you look back on all of that, what do you take away from it that informs what you're doing now? That's a really good question. I mean, it kind of, to me, underscores a little bit the, the importance of the work that we're doing. I mean, I'm really focused on building something that has value and to have such big companies fighting over what ended up to be nothing is sombering. It means that people really care about it, right? In, in 2016, many companies were claiming that this was going to be tens of billions of dollars a year of revenue next year, and then even more and more. And we're, it's what, like almost 10 years, maybe not, it's like, it's like over five years from now. And the revenue is like not even a hundredth of a percent of the investment that has gone, you know, in the entire industry. And so that's obviously going to change over time. But it's just going to take a lot longer. Everybody's excited about the future and they want it to happen. It's just very, very difficult. And so what I kind of 
took from, from all of that is really like focusing on what I'm good at, just product market fit and building something that's useful today with the technology that we have on hand now. Our conversation continues after the break. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So now you've decided to take this in a completely different direction with your company, Pronto. Can you describe what you're doing now? So Pronto right now does off-road autonomy. And so we do construction and mining truck automation. And so we move material from point A to point B. And then we move, we go back to point A, pick up more material, and come back to point B and dump in and do that uh, all day long. So Pronto, we're building autonomous vehicles for driving off-road on a closed course. Unlike on the open road, where you can drive anywhere and anybody can drive on your course, private property, it's closed course. So you can control who comes in and who gets to drive in that area. So how many customers do you have? How many of these closed courses for different kinds of industries are you now operating? Yeah, so we're almost at a dozen customers now, and the exact number of sites we're not disclosing, but it's great to see that when you have a product market fit, that there's a demand for more of the same thing that you're making. So this is a business that operates on its own now, but do you see this as a means to an end? Like, do you see this as one step along the way to achieving the ultimate goal of autonomous cars on the open road? Our objective is to automate everything that has wheels, but we're starting with the off-road mining market because that's something that we can do today and that's something that we can deliver to customers. And, you know, there's more demand there than we can handle for a company our size. So that's a great fit to start there. But ultimately, I think that the technology will scale and grow into other applications. Do you think that we'll ever have a time when we can have purely autonomous cars on the open road? Or do you think that the human factor, the ability to make those decisions based on feel and experience will always be required in order for cars to operate safely? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of people ask that over the years. And 
what we've seen is that you could think it like a stop sign. You look at the other person when they're going to go and when you're going to go. And so we initially thought that there was going to be a need for some sort of human interaction, but it turns out that even the ones that have the most kind of, are you going, am I going, and then hesitating, those don't seem to be true. So we really are are just like misinterpreting the signals and not so much needing to have that humanness be added to the the system to be able to drive. So I, I do think there will be fully driverless with other vehicles that are driven by people happening at some point in time. It's just not with the technology that we have available today. We started this conversation with you saying, you think we're going to get there eventually, and then talking about how like it's always five years away forever. What do you see when you look down the road? Like, Do you think that we are going to have autonomous cars in normal life, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years from now? Yeah, I mean, the, the answer is like, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows, right? And so is it five years? Probably not. Um, can it happen in 10? Probably. Can it, you know, might it take more than that? Probably too. We just don't know. There's, there's the fundamental breakthroughs that are needed. Obviously, AI is making fantastic strides so that the, the speed at which things could happen is almost impossible to predict. But we've been doing this for 10 plus years. There's thousands of engineers working on this and we're still somewhere really far away. It's, it's a very complicated thing to deploy. It's also the consequences of doing it prematurely is very high, right? And so you can't just go and throw the app out into the world and see if people work and then you fix the bugs and you keep fixing the bugs for the next 10 years as you're perfecting it. When this doesn't work, it has like real life consequences for the people involved. And so I think the speed is not just because it's a difficult problem. It's also because everybody's taking a lot of caution and care and safety and building something that works and isn't going to cause undue or extra harm just because it's out in the world. Anthony Lewandowski, thanks for talking with me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Now, as promised, Max Chafkin is here. He's been reporting on the ups and downs of driverless cars, including in a big story for Bloomberg Businessweek that digs into why advances have been so slow. Max, I was just talking to Anthony Lewandowski, who is one of the pioneers of autonomous cars and really saw a bright future for them, but is kind of reconsidered and now is doing it in a much more limited form with his new company. How right is he? So it's important to say that Anthony Lewandowski is one of the key pioneers, if not, you know, the pioneer in terms of commercializing self-driving cars. He is really the guy who created the Google self-driving car, the very first Google self-driving car, which became Waymo and which kind of kicked off this entire industry. He's also probably the most controversial person in this industry because, you know, after leaving Google and going to Uber, Google accused him of trade secrets theft and he was eventually charged criminally. So this is a guy who has sort of pissed off all the major players in the industry. Now, my sense from having reported this story and spent time, you know, really on both sides of the story over the last few years is that he's worth listening to. And that the things that he's saying, the criticisms that he's making of the industry are being borne out by the progress of the industry, which we're seeing basically after many years, really, of promises about self-driving cars, that there hasn't been a whole lot of progress. And that's what Anthony Lewandowski is pointing to. 
one of the things you've written about in covering this is how important mapping is and the billions of dollars that have been put in to try to develop maps that cars can reliably use. Yeah, exactly. And that is how whole driverless car thing started, actually. It's hard to remember, but early on, Google Maps started this program called Street View, where they were driving cars around, taking pictures of houses and of the roads. And that same team, which Lewandowski was on and and helped develop technology for, ended up building the early driverless cars uh, that Google launched around 2010, uh, just before 2010. And with mapping, the idea here is you want to know every corner of the road so that the computer can make decisions. And then there's the sort of question of human behavior, right? Where even if you know all the things of the road, you actually don't know what other cars are going to do. And that's kind of where Lewandowski's new thing sort of tries to solve the problem, where essentially because they're on an industrial site, because it's it's a, like a closed course, you, people are not allowed to like walk in front of the machines or, or really even be there at all. All you really need to do is create a, a really good map and essentially program the cars. And it turns them into something, you know, sort of more akin to like a, industrial robots rather than these like fully featured robo drivers that can go anywhere, can react to anything or, or what have you. Is part of the tension here between having driverless cars doing their thing next to people who are driving cars and the two don't mix, that if you had a system that was entirely driverless cars, that you could create a system where you would take out some of the other variables? Exactly. And I think we've actually, for the last few years, that's been one of the kind of lines that you hear from the people who are most enthusiastic about driverless cars, which is that, yeah, if you could just kind of like get pedestrians to behave more reliably, and if you could remove all the human-driven cars from the road, then you could have very safe, very effective driverless cars. The problem is good luck. Good luck removing pedestrians from our streets. I don't think any of us really want to do that. I'm not sure that's society, a city that I want to live in. And good luck getting rid of human drivers because the problem with the auto industry, right, is that people tend to keep their cars for a really long time. And and there isn't like some magical way you can swap out all the vehicles. If you could do that, then yeah, we'd have trains basically. And and it would be great. <laughs> They'd be super safe and, and reliable and, and probably a lot of the kind of crazy futuristic things that the urban planning types that get excited about this stuff could happen, right? You could have fewer parking spaces. You could have lower levels of car ownership and so on. It's just this is something that is going to happen over kind of like a generational scale rather than something that's going to happen in years or even decades. We'll be right back. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Next, I think a lot of the population might not like the idea of a robot driving them around. They kind of want to be in charge of their cars. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Although I think what the driverless car uh, boosters would say is like, oh, once you get used to not driving or being able to take a nap in your car, then maybe you'll feel differently. That said, we do have, it's important to say, right, there are two key companies, Waymo and Cruise. Waymo is the Google one, Cruise is the GM one, and they are operating to some extent. Largely in San Francisco and Arizona, there's been chatter about other cities kind of in the Sun Belt. And so we do have some reports from basically customers riding in these vehicles. And the thing is, they go a lot more slowly than a human-driven car, partly because they're following the speed limit, but partly because uh, these companies kind of like limit the speed so that they're able to react more properly. And so you have people who are kind of riding them, but not riding them like as an everyday thing. It's more like a fun thing. And as one driverless car engineer described it to me, it's kind of like an amusement park ride at the moment, right? Where it's like, hey, this will be kind of a fun thing. I'll take a a robot to work and it's going to take twice as long and it's going to maybe stop a few times. But gee, that's going to be fun. And it is possible that that will get better and that more and more people will do it. And that's kind of the dream, at least if you're talking about the companies that are still pursuing this aggressively. So as you look forward, you said it's going to take a while for this to happen. Lewandowski thinks, too, that it's going to get there eventually, but it's just going to take time. What are the big problems that need to be solved, and are some of those solutions actually in the works? The problem, and this is why when you ask people like Lewandowski, like, when is it going to happen, they have a hard time giving you a definitive answer, is because the things that have to happen, we don't really know what they are. Machine learning, as it exists today, is really good at memorization, right? It has to see all of these scenarios in order to be able to do them again. And that's why drive becomes such a big problem because, like, there's so many different things and you have to drive just almost an infinite number of miles to be able to show the computer all of the scenarios it needs to see in order for it to to sort of learn what it needs to do. You talk to... The, the critics and what they say is it's not that we need a little bit more work or something or a little bit more money. You need a fundamental breakthrough in AI in order to make that happen. And that's a breakthrough that we haven't had yet. One person who's getting into it is Elon Musk. He had done it with Tesla. Now he's kind of making a different sort of bet on driverless cars, too. I mean, one thing that happens when Elon Musk gets into any space is He generates a lot of attention for Elon Musk, but then he tends to also advance technologies a lot of the time. Is there something that he's doing that's different that would maybe accelerate some of the things you're talking about? Oh, so there are two things that Musk is doing that make Tesla especially interesting and make a lot of people look at it and think, well, if anybody's going to get there, you know, maybe it's going to be Tesla. So one of those things is that 
Tesla has has a lot of cars on the road collecting data, right? They have this gigantic fleet. They have these sort of semi-autonomous technologies. The cars are hooked up to cameras and training Tesla's machine learning algorithms to be better at driving. I, you know, I mentioned that getting a lot of miles is really important. So Tesla has this kind of built-in advantage. The other thing that Tesla has is Elon Musk, you may be aware of this, doesn't give a, a you-know-what about rules and regulations. And so one of the things that has kind of slowed slowed things down, right, is regulators. And Musk just sort of went ahead and launched this thing that he called full self-driving without essentially, you know, on his own. And he's sort of in this kind of protracted fight with various parts of the government over various things, one of which has to do with these semi-autonomous software programs that Tesla has launched and that is, you know, has on the road. And so you could debate the morals of it, but having that fleet and having that kind of more aggressive approach to regulation does give him an advantage. Now, I would argue he's going to run into a lot of the same problems that all these other companies are running into, but maybe he does have a leg up in some ways. You could see the federal government wanting to get a hand in this, especially if it starts to become more common. The government doesn't have such a great track record of keeping up with technology. Do you think that government involvement would actually help or hurt? Well, I mean, the government is very involved in this. The original technology that kicked this off was at a DARPA event, the DARPA Grand Challenge, you know, which is a Defense Department thing. So, like, a lot of the fundamental research has come out of the government. And the government is, uh, maybe not at the federal level, but certainly the state level regulating this stuff, California in particular, has a really elaborate uh, regulatory regime, which is like part of the reason I think that the companies have largely been in California. And uh, there are a handful of other states as well, Arizona and um, Nevada. But yeah, I mean, the government is trying. There are a bunch of questions, one of which is like, what counts as a self-driving car? Like, is is Elon Musk allowed to advertise this Tesla technology as full self-driving if you have to keep your hands on the wheel? And then the other question is kind of like safety. Like, at what point do we think these cars are safe enough? Do they have to be equal to human driving? Do they have to be better? And, and again, how much better? And those are questions that are not solved yet. No, those are not answered. And that is going to be yet another kind of impediment because we as a society all have to decide at what point do we turn the keys over to, to the bots. Max Chafkin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Rogalina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romaniello is our producer. Our associate producer is Zenob Siddiqui. Rafael Amsili is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. 
Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.